I am super excited to be here again today with Glenn for episode three of our discussion, broadly speaking, about the nature of life. And in our last episode, we covered the differences between complexity and chaos, and, um, and then we moved into entropy. And as I understand, the way you want to move forward today is just kind of review our last episode a little bit and then kind of do a deep dive into entropy. And I'm ready. Okay. Yeah, after our last conversation, I, I listened to it a couple of times myself. And I, I had a feeling that I wasn't satisfied that I'd communicated fully to, um, to people. So I thought it'd be nice to just go back to that last talk and hit the high points again. And then before we move on, Okay. And so the general theme, I think, of, of all of these conversations is um, definitions. And when you're dealing with thermodynamic systems, you always need to be aware that there's an outside and an inside, and then there'll be some kind of boundary in between. And oftentimes how we will use the same word in either con both contexts, inside and outside. And I think that leads to a, a bit of confusion. And I think it would be best to deal with the confusion before we get too deep into the subjects because ultimately our, we want to tackle what does physics have to say about the origins of life questions. So um, the first place I wanted to, to go back on and touch again was how we use complexity and order mm -hmm. and also the word chaos um, that comes up a lot. And so the example, a watch might be compl complex or as an example of complexity, or a crystal and solid we would we call ordered. Now there's a, a measure called the Kolomogorov uh, complexity measure. And essentially in lay terms, what it means is you write a computer program that simulates what it is you're trying to measure. And then how many lines in that program is how complex that object is. So to describe a crystal and solid would be a very short description, whereas to describe the inner workings of a watch, you'd basically be sending the whole CAD files, which would be huge. Now, what happens when you step outside, those are inside views. If you step outside um, the crystal and solid, it's still simple. But if you step outside the watch, all of a sudden now it becomes simple again. Um, how you interact with the watch can be described with you know, very few lines of ins or instruction lines. So there's this, as you cross the boundary, uh, you all of a sudden your system becomes simple again if you're thinking in terms of how you interact with it. And I think your talk with Alex, you're um, getting, getting close to that, that when you cross the boundary, sometimes things get simpler again. Uh -huh. And I've always liked the term threshold of complexity. Um, I think, who was that, Friston or Frison? The, the Carl Friston, yeah. Friston, yeah. I think he was, he was trying to talk in terms of Markov blankets, mm -hmm. but it's, I'm, I'm sensing he's getting at the same thing, is that once you cross a certain boundary layer, how you interact with the system now becomes a lot simpler. The, the inner workings become hidden, so to speak, from you. And so I'm kind of intrigued by his work because I feel like I'm listening to somebody who's seeing the same things I am. Sorry. So 
Are we comfortable now with, with complexity has to do? Yes, I, have, I just have one question. Um, so if I'm talking about um, cellular automata, um, they don't require very many lines of um, code to- Not at all. So they're not well, complex. No, <laughs> they are not complex, but the computer that you're running them on might be. Okay, so you, so you you step back one more layer. I got it. Okay, okay. Yeah. Okay. Now you can you can put a bunch of cellular automata together, and let them interact as if they're life forms. That's essentially what artificial life simulations are, and all of a sudden now you'll get complex behaviors arising from all these little simple things interacting with each other, which is is a fun area that we'll probably touch in later. Um, but the other word that I've noticed that people use is chaos. And I, I wanted to, to make, get a little more clear on that because there's a, a theological or psychological um, common usage when we say chaos. It certainly has a certain emotive context to it, um, archetypal mm -hmm. context to it in how we use it, as opposed to how a physicist uses the word chaos, which is very rigorously defined mathematically. So, okay, so if you want to know if you taught me properly, maybe I should try to define okay, yes. the way you described it. Uh, chaos is perfectly deterministic because the, the very next state is determined by the current state. But for trying to predict far out into the future, errors can um, develop exponentially because it's very dependent on the initial state. And so even a small change in the initial state can make the future unpredictable. Correct. So we'll, we'll touch on that, but- Is that a correct definition of chaos? Yes, you've got it. Okay. But I was thinking um, the other uses, uh, when we use chaos, there's sometimes uh, an element of emotion or of maybe even fear in that. Mm -hmm. which is more than just disorder or disorganization might communicate. And one of the examples I've used in the past as a TA to distinguish is, are you familiar with the mystery spot? That little tourist trap? I've been there. Okay. <laughs> well, not the one, not the one um, in, uh, by Mount Hermon down around Boulder in that area. I haven't been to that one, but I've been to one up in Northern California. Okay, well, the one outside of Santa Cruz, Mount Hermon area. Yeah. Um, one summer, I was part of a, a summer STEM workshop for high school kids, and one of the yeah, activities was to to go out to the mystery spot and go in as groups, and then each little group took on one of the uh, optical illusions or effects, and then later they came back to the meeting hall at the campground, and everyone gave a, a breakdown of what they were seeing, but. I'm not sure if any of your other listeners are familiar, but it's a little tourist trap set up in the Santa Cruz mountains and they built everything crooked. Yeah. So there's no level surface or straight line or right angle corners. And so when you go up there, you get completely disoriented. And some people actually get a, a bit sick to their stomach and have to leave. And I've often thought it's a great place if you're going into either physics or psychology to visit, to see how, your vision affects how you actually feel physically. 
but it's an interesting world where there's no right corners, there's nothing you can orient yourself with, and it becomes um, unsettling. And so I've often used that as, as my lead into what chaos is and why chaos is different. Disorder disorganized still implies that there's some reference point you can go back from. But when we use the word chaos, we're, we're suggesting there's no reference point at all to, to gain any, you know, organization to our world. So that was just well, that's, a little... That's very helpful. Yeah. So now we're, we're on the, the topic of uh, prediction, predictability versus determinism. And I want to expand on this one because this is a big area. So generally in physics or sciences, we're used to the notion that things are both predictable and deterministic. We use, and people just associate those words now, they're synonyms. But when you get into chaos or chaotic behavior, you have a system which is deterministic, but not predictable. And so I, I, I use the word determinism and, and non-deterministic is how mother nature looks at things. Whereas my wife says that's God's eye view of things. Whereas predictability is, call it the outside, it's, it's how an imperfect observer like us interacts with the system. So certain things in physics like a straight pendulum, you can solve that equation exactly, even the nonlinear version, and predict five million years in the future exactly where the pendulum's gonna be. But chaos or chaotic motion um, is still a pendulum, a pendulum, as simple as that, is completely deterministic. Mother nature knows exactly where it's gonna be the, the next moment, but we as human beings can't ever guess completely where it's going to be. There'll always be some error. Now there's two other cases come up. Is it possible for something to be both unpredictive, unpredictable and non-deterministic? That would be a true random number generator. And you get into some of this, uh, the observers in quantum mechanics, you know, the, the famous Alice and Bob observers, um, they are examples of where people make a choice as to what measurement is going to happen next. And that choice is referred to in physics as a free choice, which means it's non not predictable and the out outcome is non-deterministic. And then there's another possibility that something can be predictable, but non, not deterministic. So that was a fun one to think about and uh, probably is a homework problem for your listeners. But I would suggest that a computer running a program is an example of something that is predictable, but non-deterministic. Because remember determinism is mother nature's view of the situation. Mother nature has no idea what the bits and bytes in that computer are gonna do until it runs the program. But you as someone who wrote the program will be able to know ahead of time what's going to happen. So you might people might disagree or not, but I think it's something you need to wrestle with because if you wanna say that the program is deterministic, then you have to say that the program has some kind of physical existence that the laws of physics apply to. That's the step you have to make. And that's what, um, where physics gets intriguing. 
is you, you suggest that things like computer programs actually have physical reality, even though where is a program? You know, you can't, you can't put it down. You can't go to the store and buy a bucket of programming, uh, so to speak. So like I say, that's just a curious thing to, to ponder. And is, is that why, so when, that, when there are so many um, arguments over whether human beings have free will or whether we're completely determined, that's because they're not taking into account other things that have no physical existence, like, right. like love and desire and, and mm -hmm. all of those things. Yes, there's a, some intelligence out there which we are responding to, making choices and acting out in the world. And wherever that intelligence is, we can dis we'll discuss that down the road, but um, those are free choices and mother nature doesn't know what's coming next until we make them. And wherever those choices are coming from is not a physical place that you can pin down and say, here it is, put it in a box and, and label it. So like I say, it's, it's not an easy question. It's one of those things you have to wrestle with and think about like a lot of things in science, which we're gonna to touch on shortly. So good, are, are, is that making sense? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm okay. Anybody who's not caught up, go back and watch episode two and it'll, 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 it'll make sense. Good, because sometimes by your questions, I'm not sure I've actually communicated correctly, but I no, think no, we're getting you've it out. communicated. I'm just, uh, where I see, if I see some little hole in what I'm understanding, I just want to make sure that we get it filled in, yeah. Okay, well, we're doing a good job then. So the next step I, we discussed the last time was Shannon information slash entropy. Yeah. And I wanted to go touch again on that one because again, this is an example where you see the inside versus the outside interpretations. So I went back and looked at one of my old uh, information theory textbooks on Shannon and uh, they use the word uncertainty and probabilities to develop uh, the mathematics. And I remember I suggested that instead of uncertainties and probabilities, that a better definition would be how many yes, no questions you have to ask to completely characterize a system. And I've played around with it for a while and I realized that either way you define information, you still end up with the same mathematics. So that's a question is if two different interpretations or metaphysics, you might say, generate the same mathematics, then which of the original starting definitions do you keep or hang on to? And I, I tend just my personal preference is to the second one where you're asking questions because it's a much more useful definition. Um, I often tend to think in terms of usefulness. Can you use the definition to do other things now? And the yes, no question tells you how to communicate, tells you how to modulate your signal the yes, no's turn into ones and zeros. And since Shannon was actually doing communications theory, we're talking about communicating information from one observer to another observer. So again, it implies an outside view. And this kind of um, yes, no questions are, are much more applicable to outside observers trying to make sense out of what the, what the data has been transmitted. So uh, does that making sense? Yes, absolutely. And, and it occurs to me also that that, that second definition is, seems much more 
foundational. It's like we've we've gone back and back and back and back. We're at a very yes. foundational standpoint of of the the very beginning being this binary situation where once you get into uncertainties and probabilities, if you make that your foundation of everything, then all of a sudden <laughs> nothing makes sense, right? Yeah. It, so so yeah, I'm I'm actually, you know, my my creative instincts come out my hands. I'm one of those people. I, I build stuff, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is why I ended up you know, as a hardware design engineer in Silicon Valley. Um, so I, when I listen to discussions, I'm, my, I'm always listening for what can I use to build something with? Or are you, are you telling me something that makes sense if I tried to build it? And that's my brain filter. So a lot of times people, I'll, that's why philosophy doesn't really work for me. So mm -hmm. anyway, just a sidebar on, on how my brain works. Well, I think, ultimately that, notes. I think all knowledge ultimately has to go through that filter. Otherwise, it doesn't become real knowledge. Mm -hmm. If it's just up here. Yeah. It's not real knowledge. It's, it's just. Um, That's a good question is, is what does it mean to know something? Is the book learning or in my younger life, I've worked around a lot of older men uh, in heavy equipment. Mm -hmm. And um, I've watched, I remember one guy who was a mechanic, diesel mechanic, and, I, and it was so amazing to watch him work that you, you know there's intelligence there, but you know, he only had a high school diploma. So I've, I've had that window in my life to see um, skilled labor at work and realize how much intelligence there actually is there, even though people don't have diplomas. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, look at some of these guys that became multi-millionaires building an empire who only had a third grade education, so mm -hmm. yeah. So, um, so here's a question. Is it possible to build a chaotic system? Oh, yeah, all the time. Okay. The, the double pendulum, just Google double pendulum. And there's probably, you know, 200 different demos on your on YouTube alone. There's lots of uh, different um, is it chaotic systems. Build, is it possible to build a disordered system? Hmm. Well, imagine any box with a gas in it just would be considered disordered. Um, random motion. You're not building the disorder, though. You've just created a space for the disorder to occur. Right. Yeah, I think yeah, the universe is good at creating disorder. It's, it's uh, us humans, intelligent life forms, which are, are the masters of creating order out of the disorder, which is, it gets into the anti-entropic nature of life very interesting thing right like yeah like what would there be for us to do if there wasn't all this disorder in the universe? well some might argue that's the whole point of a life form is to do yeah. that yeah. i think that's where that julian barbara or barber yeah barber he's he's hinting at he's, he's getting at is that something has happened in this universe life forms have, have emerged and we're, we're trying to organize things so we're, we're reducing entropy yeah, okay. okay. So we're on Shannon information. And the last thing you said before I got in there and started asking questions okay. that there'd be, you could have one, two, two sets of definitions. And uh, the second definition you find more useful in other 
context. So you want to stick with that for now. Right. And I'm not, so I'm not saying one is wrong and one is right. I, I don't make that argument because they both generate the same mathematics. And if you're a physicist and you're publishing a paper, you're doing mathematics. And so that sort of keeps you honest. Um, so you don't have to worry about your definitions. But in sort of general conversations that we're having and you see on YouTube, I think it's, it's more important to start paying attention to the, the distinctions in the definitions. Okay. And one thing on, while we're on this point that I wanted to go a little bit farther in the uses of information. And I think Julian Barber talked about it in his paper, um, It From Bit, which you recommended to me. It From It. No, It From Bit. No, John Wheeler's is It From Bit. It, yeah, and Barber's okay. is Bit. Barber's is Bit From It because he- Bit From It, yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, you, you remember better than I do, but- <laughs> Yeah, that's a good paper. If, if someone's a physics nerd and they, they want to dive into the subject, it, it's a good place to start. But he, he brings up the same thing I've run into is, is that we use information, the word in multiple senses. So like there's the Shannon sense, which is in uncertainties, probabilities. Then there's the sense that information is actually telling you something useful. So um, you might talk, entropy might say, well, how many states are there in the system? Whereas a bit of information in, in the second sense, well, it's taller short. Now, being tall or short could encompass a lot of different states, but all you're asking is one question, is it tall or short? So one bit of information in that sense can encompass a lot of different states in the original Shannon sense. So it gets confusing. So yes, no questions about observing a system can don't necessarily map to the notion of states and probabilities. That's the cautionary note. Then there's the other way that physics is using information and you see a lot in the cosmology, the black hole, theory, um, uh, holographic principle, mm -hmm. stuff like that. And again, that's very confusing. I need to dive into that. But that's using information in yet another way. And I've also run across people talk about semantic information and languages. Mm -hmm. And that sort of leaves me behind. I'm not sure about that. But I want to just leave it out there so that people know that there's more than just my three ways of looking at information. Yeah, I just started reading a book about the semantic information thing and it breaks down kind of the same way that you started with that one way, one kind of semantics tells you something useful and, and the other form of semantics is um, telling you something that goes beyond useful. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm out of my league here, so I should just stop. Yeah, well, until I've read the book fully, I'm not gonna make a comment on it either, but it, it does it does map onto this idea. Mm -hmm. But, I'm, well, just before I move on, I, I didn't mention on chaos that I think I sent you a link on strange attractors. Um, mm -hmm. You'll often hear, um, in discussions of, of the origin of life, 
They'll talk about chaos, order coming out of chaos, chaotic systems. And that's a, a funny area and it's an, really intriguing and maybe the artist in you might like it. That you can't predict where a chaotic system is going to be in the future, but they are bounded, which means it's, they're just gonna be like a bee in a hive. It's always gonna come back to this same area over and over again. So imagine you, you took a camera and every time it flew by you, you took a picture of the state of the system. And then you added up all those little pictures to make one big um, composite image. What you'll start to see is a shape where a surface take form. And those are called strange attractors. And there's some very beautiful shapes in, uh, in multiple dimensions that come out and people have run computer programs to simulate them. And so they're fun to watch. And um, like I said, I, I can resend you the link if, if you have lost it. No, no, I watched it. And yes, um, I, I think this plays out. In, it seems like it plays out in a lot of different areas. But I mean, the movement of planets may not be in the same category as this, because the movement of planets is not a chaotic system. But, but when they we don't know. They, well, okay, we don't know. But when you when you sit back and they take pictures of, or or they have an artist rendering of the movements of the planets, what comes out of it are these gorgeous configurations. I mean, they're just so beautiful. Um, yeah, that's one of the funny things that Mother Nature doesn't see the world the way we do necessarily, and that's one of the the challenges of studying physics is training your brain to see the world the way mother nature does rather than through the eyes you're used to. So the strange attractors are in phase space, which is for us would be six dimensions. And just to realize that the patterns you're seeing are not in real life, they're, they're in another world. But that is the world that mother nature is, is, is looking at things. So that would be one standpoint at which you have to incorporate humility into your study of physics. <laughs> yeah, you, you early on, I, very in my teenage years, I, I learned that there's things that I can't do with my brain. When I, I first started taking physics, it was, I could just look at a problem and I knew the answer and I could write it down. And then I started, I got into special relativity and four dimensions and, and curves. And I realized my brain couldn't do that trick anymore. I actually had to sit and do the work. <laughs> that was my first wake up call. That your brain is not made to see the world the way mother nature sees it. So you, like you say, humility. And sometimes the math is like, it's flying instruments. You, you, you can't trust your eyes and you have to trust the math. So with that sidelight, I, I think we've covered most of that ground. Yep. And now we're, we're ready for entropy, finally. Okay. And one of the, the common, um, no, I don't want to use the word misconceptions, but um, well, we'll, we'll come up with a better word later, is that people think of entropy as some kind of measure of disorder mm -hmm. and uh, counting states and the world is, the universe is tending towards the disorder. And that's kind of true, but it's, it's, it's a very small part of the bigger picture. And a lot of those notions that we have for entropy today come out of uh, Boltzmann's statistical mechanics uh, approach, 
to um, thermodynamics. But entropy was around about 20 years or a generation before Boltzmann. And so that's what I wanted to go back and touch on is that there's other things about entropy that made people notice it long before the statistical side arguments came forward. And I haven't noticed people really use that. So I thought we'd take a, a dive into history and where the notion of entropy first comes from. Okay. So we go back to the, the days of steam engines, early 1800s, late 1700s. Uh, steam was just coming in. Actually, steam was ubiquitous. You know, there were steam engines everywhere. And so when people were thinking of thermodynamics, the original start was designing and trying to understand how the engines were working. Obviously heat was going in, mechanical work was coming out, and then there was some kind of cooler condenser which took out the waste heat. And one of the first misunderstandings or confusions was they didn't know what heat was. Uh, there was some people theorized it was some sort of caloric fluid that flowed through the system and somehow it, it made work happen. So the first step was, um, I think it was Joule, noticed that heat was actually a form of energy. He did an experiment where he turned mechanical work into heat. And so he showed that heat and uh, mechanical work were the same thing. So that's essentially the first law of thermodynamics, which we read today as conservation of energy in its beginning was just equating heat with work as some kind of form of energy. But now they're looking at this steam engine and trying to figure, you know, understand it. There was a French physicist, uh, Sadi Carnot. He came along in the early 1800s. And he, he noticed that the absolute maximum efficiency you could get out of a steam engine was the difference between hot and cold temperature divided by the hot temperature. I wish I had a blackboard right now to start lecturing. So T hot minus T cold divided by T hot gave you the maximum thermodynamic efficiency that you could ever get out of a steam engine. And no one knew why that was. It was just a conjecture because that's what they were seeing. So that was the first challenge in thermodynamics was to understand where that relationship was coming from. Uh, Thompson, Thomas, later Lord Kelvin, he tackled it, but he and some of the other scientists, physicists at the time, concentrated on the power stroke of the engine, looking at the heat flowing in expansion. But Clausius came along, uh, Rudolf Clausius came along, and he realized his moment of inspiration was that you had to include the return stroke, the compression, the, the cleanup phase, so to speak, um, into the, the whole uh, thermodynamic question. You had to view it as a cycle. You start, you go through a cycle and you have to return back to where you started from. And in the return, something has to happen. That's when the waste heat gets dumped. And, uh, one of my images, people will talk about a, a teenager's bedroom as an example of disorder and entropy. Um, the entropy in the teenager's disorganized bedroom gets transferred to the universe uh, during the moment of cleaning up. So that's, it's the cleanup phase when the entropy gets transferred to the universe. 
Clausius figured that one out. And then he's probably stared at the problem for, I don't know, years. And then one day he was looking at it and he realized there was something mathematically going on. And he basically just wrote it down. And that is this contract, he called it entropy. And it's the heat flow divided by the temperature. So delta Q over T. Heat, if you do the heat flow, heat transfer divided by the temperature that the heat transfer is happening at. And if you integrate that quantity over the full cycle, it will always be zero or depending on how you do it, less than or greater than zero, depending on if energy is going in or out, plus or minus signs come back to haunt you big time on this one. And I've looked at the history. I have no idea. There is no step-by-step -step process. Um, I think he was just looking at it and one day he saw it and he wrote it down and there it was. Hmm. So his concept of entropy as a flow from the hot into the system and then back out into the cold reservoir, those two flows had to be equal or, or, not, or less than or however you want to count it. A perfectly efficient engine, those two flows would be equal. And he coined the word entropy it's from the Greek entropia, which means transform. So he referred to entropy as a transformation current. Um, and my, my, think, my example to you is entropy in the classic sense is kind of like the big brother to energy. And entropy kind of hangs along and makes sure that energy doesn't get into trouble. Um, Entropy is a second uh, quantity that keeps the first uh, quantity um, from taking itself and turning itself completely into work. Uh, I think I'm getting a little confusing now, but uh, well, originally. So, yeah, I, I need to ask a question here. Um, so the free energy is the energy that's left over that can still be turned into work. So, so if you add entropy plus free energy, do you get back to the potential energy? Entropy is not energy. I, and I, I'm guilty of abusing that, that term myself. Entropy is change, flow in energy divided by the temperature. So entropy is a measure, we say entropy is a measure of, of the energy unavailable to do work. But how much energy is unavailable to do work depends on how you're getting the work out of the chemical or heat energy to start with. Well, so, okay, but if entropy is the measure of that energy which is unavailable for work, if it's just a measure, and free energy is a measure of that which is available for work, then if you add the two together, shouldn't you get one? You integrate the entropy over the <laughs> <laughs> over the cycle. Yes, it's you have to integrate the times temperature to get an energy term. If okay, you do so, that, so then you're you right. Integrate it over the whole cycle. They do add up to one. Yes, if you're a perfectly efficient cycle, the entropy going in equals the entropy going out, and all the difference in energy got converted to work. So entropy is not 
energy itself, but it's a bookkeeping device to make sure that um, you don't violate Carnot's um, original observation about the maximum efficiency of a heat engine. So now I've completely confused you. So let me just reiterate, entropy is a bookkeeping device to make sure that you don't violate Carnot's principle. Right, so that, that if you wanna go back 150 years and, and think about what entropy meant to the scientists, physicists at the time, that's how they were using it. And, and you can see it's quite different than how we use it today. So how much free energy do you have in a system depends on the difference between the hot and cold reservoirs. Let's say you're working at your engine from. So the hotter temperature you can run at or the colder temperature you can use as your condenser side, the more efficient your engine is, the more free energy there is available. And the less um, uh, entropy flow is still the same, but like I say, the energy is the integration of the entropy times temperature over the cycle. It's more complicated, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Yes, yes. <laughs> So that, that when people use it in a simple way, they're, they're missing um, uh, certain complexity or they're, they're missing something mathematically that's more important going on. Well, uh, what I always hear the, millenn the millennials, my, my daughter's a millennial, oh. and, they're, and they throw the word around as, you know, entropy is the cause of all their problems. <laughs> If it just weren't for entropy, they wouldn't have to take a shower in the morning. If it just weren't for entropy, they wouldn't have to clean their rooms. If it just weren't for entropy, you know, that the fact that everything degrades over time is the cause of all the, you know, the reason they have to do work. Well, I wouldn't say entropy is the cause. I think just entropy is the indicator. It's, it's, the, it's the mileage indicator for how much um, disorganization has happened, but it's not the disorganization itself. Now, don't know if that one helped at all either. Um, so get yeah, back to- What is the cause of the disorganization then? Good question. I, I, that's If you answer that, you'll probably get a Nobel prize. Um, okay, okay, I'll work <laughs> on it. <laughs> so originally, you know, we, we read the second law of thermodynamics today to say that entropy of the universe increases, things tend towards disorganization. Um, but in the original classic sense, pre-statistical mechanics sense, entropy, a uh, second law was originally uh, Carnot's statement that the maximum efficiency of any engine working between a hot and a cold reservoirs is that T hot minus T cold over T hot. That was his mathematical relationship. Lord Kelvin phrased second law as saying there's no such thing as a perfect engine. And then Clausius version of the second law is there's no such thing as a perfect refrigerator. So it sort of makes maybe some sense because Kelvin worked on the power stroke of the, heat in, um, the steam engine and Clausius focused on the return compressions stroke when you're pushing the heat back out. So those are all three equivalents. And uh, just as a, a point of trivia, uh, a perpetual motion of the first kind is one that violates the first law of thermodynamics. 
and they also have a perpetual motion of the second kind is one that violates the second law of thermodynamics. Well, so was that when they got the, when Kelvin and, and Celsius and Carnell came up with all this stuff, was that the, was that when they first realized that there was always loss to friction and that um, therefore there couldn't be a perpetual motion machine? Was that the beginning of that? No, this is, this is much deeper. Um, everyone understands there's, there's friction and there'll always be loss because of that. But this statement about entropy is, goes way beyond that. This is a qualitative or metaphysical statement at some level that goes beyond the way it exists, whether there's friction or not. Though friction is one of the mechanisms by which entropy is transferred. Sorry. But mostly it comes back to irreversibility. That seems to be the key. That what makes systems flow in a certain direction is that you can't always go backwards. Uh, life, the universe seems to wanna to always go in one direction. And then people say the second law says, but you can't go back. Um, so we could- That's that whole uh, arrow of time thing. Yes, but here's the big question. Does the arrow of time get a direction from the second law or does the second law occur because the arrow of time already has a direction. That's an open question in physics is where does the arrow of time come from? And if the universe already has a, a direction to the arrow of time, then the second law of thought would follow naturally out of that. So that's a curious question down the road. But not but, today. <laughs> <laughs> not for today. So I think I, I'm trying to see all my notes here. Um, oh yeah, one of them was the sign on, on Clausius. It's, it's a good teaching moment for how we teach science today. That it's, we teach it as like a, a formula, a recipe. If you do this, a hypothesis, or we test and we get to conclusions. And so I think a lot of people assume science is a step-by-step -step process, but it isn't. A lot of times in Clausius's case, you just stare at the problem, maybe years. And then one day out of the blue, you see the answer and you write it down. And that's how a lot of science gets done. And I don't know if the public actually appreciates that. Um, that some things are just, you know, you're not gonna put a bunch of kids in a classroom and give them a group exercise to just theory of gravity, it took thousands of years of the top brains in the world staring at the problem before someone finally got it. Of course, then once they write the, write the answer down in high school, if you're a clever student. Well, that, I think that's, that's where people get into this problem of um, worshiping science, is that kids are always taught in school that there's this certain format for doing science. And if you just follow this format, then you're gonna make all these discoveries and that's where everything comes from. And therefore there's no need for any influence or any inspiration or anything. But if, mm -hmm. you, if you look at the guys like Einstein or these guys here, I mean, they're even working on what might be considered a very minor problem, but it's a problem that has to be resolved if there's going to be, you know, widely available, sufficient energy and 
these when these problems get solved, they create more good for the world. And, mm -hmm. and you know, they also create a lot of potential for bad in the world. <laughs> yeah, well. But, but everything takes a huge leap forward every time one of these problems is solved, which is I mean, obviously why we have the cliche that we're standing on the shoulders of giants. But these giants aren't living in a vacuum. When you stare at something for a long time and then all of a sudden the answer comes, where is it coming from? You know, that, I, and nobody ever wants to tackle that question. I know, I, I think that's one of, maybe one of the common characteristics of, of what we call genius, um, because it comes in all sorts of forms, but there's a certain persistence that shows up in, in people who can do that, to just stay there and focus and whatever, wrestle with the problem, obsess on it, you know, if, if that's the word you want to use. And then somewhere out of the blue, they see the answer. I think after that, it's Hamed easy. Hamed said that um, Einstein thought about it for eight years. And he mm -hmm. said, how could anybody just think about and fail and think about and fail and think about and fail something for eight years? How could they do that? You know? Oh, well, that's physics. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you think if you, I always kind of joke if some, somebody in high school asked me if they should go into physics, I would say, if it bothers you having your ego crushed to dust on a daily basis, then don't go into physics. Because every day you go out there, you'll feel like the stupidest person on the planet. So it's typical, you know, you, you get your career and then you do research for five, 10, 20 years and publications. And then some hot grad student at Caltech comes along and writes a paper and blows everything you've done out of the water. And then you start over again. But that's the way it is. And one guy is quoted as saying that the secret to success is to be able to go from failure to failure with undiminished enthusiasm. Yeah, well, and, and I, maybe that's why Jesus says that we, we need to come to him as a child, because that's exactly what a child is willing to do. They're willing to go from failure to failure with undiminished enthusiasm, and that's the way mm -hmm. they learn. Otherwise, they wouldn't ever become adults. Yeah, sometimes you just have to put yourself aside and, and humble yourself and say, okay, I'm a stupid idiot. Teach me. <laughs> well, and there, along with that, there also has to be the desire. Mm -hmm. you, have, you have to have your desire is for some higher goal that you're trying to get at. And so you're willing to sacrifice and suffer and do something over and over and over again, repetitively failing every time until mm -hmm. you get to that goal. I mean, that's 10,000 hours becomes a moment of freedom for a pianist or an artist or a exactly. artist or any, you know, anybody. And that was one of the other things that came to mind is, is for your listeners when they're tackling these topics, is a lot of times physics, I'm sure a lot of other sciences, they're not things like history where you just read and memorize. They're, it's more like working out for a sport or learning to play a music instrument. You have to practice repetition, keep um, My trick is I always imagine I'm in front of a classroom trying to explain it to people. And if I can't, if I don't understand it myself, then I can't explain it. So I keep asking myself questions as if I'm one of the clueless students, you know, and I go, well, maybe I, I need to go back and review. And you just do that for weeks, sometimes months on a subject before it finally starts to sink in. Well, so do you, I, I feel like we haven't, we still haven't gotten to the point where you 
want to get at for your definition of entropy? Or have we? Yeah, so I'm, I'm wanting to, to uh, we're getting close. Okay. So, sorry for the break, having to think. One of the last things I wanted to talk about is when we discussed Shannon entropy, we talked about the two different ways to look at it as mm -hmm. uncertainty and probabilities or as questions to ask, um, yes or no. You can sort of do the same thing with entropy, um, the thermodynamic version. You can talk about states, probabilities, energies. And then in that sense, you talk about disorder, that a system tends to maximum disorder. And that becomes the, the stable point. And so a lot of these definitions like entropy, when you define it that way, it only works in a static um, state in thermal equilibrium. It, it's not helpful when you're outside of that realm. But there's another way, and that's the outsider's views. How much information do you have about where the state came from. So you start with a thermodynamic system, you do something to change it, change the volume, change the temperature. Now it's going to, it's out of equilibrium and it will tend towards a new equilibrium. And as it tends towards that new equilibrium, it will lose the information about where it came from, its initial state. So you can, rather than say maximum disorder, you can say maximum forgetfulness. Um, the dynamic system tends to a state where it's lost all information about where it originally came from. And I find that's an intriguing different way to look at it. Um, the first way in terms of probabilities and statistics, to say things can't go back, you're just making a probabilistic statement. You're saying, well, in the lifetime of the universe, it's vanishingly small that it will ever go back. But Statistically, it is possible to find its way back there at some point. Whereas if you look at- If you're inside the system. If you're inside the system, sorry. Um, but if you're outside, you see the system go towards a place where all information about where it started from is gone. So that means if you were an outside observer and you wanted to, like a Maxwell's demon, push things around and make things go back to where they used to be, you can't because you don't know anymore. And so the second way of looking at um, entropy is a much more uh, metaphysically final statement. You can't go back because you don't know where you came from. Whereas the other one's probabilistic is that you can't go back. Well, you can, but you know, probably not in the lifetime of the universe. So I think there's, there's a little metaphysical contrast between those two statements. And I'm still curious, I haven't worked it out be interesting if some of your listeners want to play with it. Well, so just to specify, inside you're in um, thermal equilibrium, but outside you're moving from um, you're moving from being outside out of equilibrium to a new equilibrium, out of equilibrium to a new. You're, you're constantly mm -hmm. in this motion, and that's what causes the maximum forgetfulness. Right. So you're not at, so you're outside of equilibrium. So isn't that part of um, 
I'm outside my realm of expertise here, obviously, but it seems to me that well, that's the language that they're using in the complexity economics and in the self-organizing criticality. You know. Yeah, yeah, we're we're getting there. I'd I'd like to be able to spend a week or two reviewing that before I talk further on it. But yeah, that's where okay. we're, we're starting to get into the right track. Yeah, your intuition is is, is working correctly. One of the useful things that comes out of the second definition is it tends any living system will degrade over time. Well, actually your teenage bedroom, you know, that example, it will degrade in, into disorder over time. So now, any living system or anything that comes under the purview of a living system. <laughs> Yeah, so, right. okay, we'll try that. Okay. Yeah, but you can't clean up the room, the room if you don't remember what it looked like before. Uh, you can't, um, if you're to reproduce a living system, you can't re reproduce it from an adult because genetic information, errors have crept into the system uh, over time. And this is, uh, the, remember Dolly the sheep? Mm -hmm. They cloned her from uh, adult stem cell. So, and she lived a very short life. And the reason why is she was born an old sheep already. So somehow the genetic uh, breakdown had gotten into the cells that they had used to clone her, which is one of the arguments against cloning in general. So if, if you're mother nature and you want to keep uh, renewing or restoring a living system, you always have to keep an original copy somewhere around, and then you recreate from the original copy. So yeah, I'm not, you sent that to me in an email, and I'm puzzling. What exactly do you mean by that? With what original copy? Oh, well, I'll go back to the 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 system. You goes out of thermal equilibrium. You wait for a while. It's now in a new equilibrium. The system is in a state of maximum forgetfulness. The only way for a Maxwell's demon or some kind of outside agent to come in and push the thermodynamic system back to where it was is if it had a roadmap. If it had some kind of, it kept a copy of the original state to mm -hmm. use as a roadmap to go back. And life has that problem. And so that's why we have DNA is the original copy we always reproduce I ourselves okay because okay. that's the fresh copy that's not the one that's been degraded over time that is is us to, well i turned 70 this year so 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 and i'm just going to throw this in here because i'm feeling crazy um you know rupert sheldrake says that dna um tells tells the cells how to develop, how to specify, but it doesn't tell the systems how to organize, that that information is not in the DNA. And so he, he posited this idea of um, morphic resonance, that there, is a, that there is a memory built into the universe somehow of how the arm knows where to go and the, yeah. and the brain knows where to go and you know all these pieces know how to fit together 
and and that would be true whether it's a very small very small system or all the way up to human system mm -hmm. um then without without some idea of how those things organize then so his idea is this idea of morphic resonance and i i i've listened to a lot of his stuff and i don't think i agree with it although he has some very compelling research that he's done that um, points to certain elements of it being true, but, mm -hmm. but the whole picture, I'm just, I'm not so sure of, but, but anyway. Maybe that's a future talk. I'll, I'll dive in and try and have make sense ever, of it for you. Ever I've heard the name, I've heard the terms, Okay. but I haven't focused on it enough to feel yeah. comfortable and it's irrelevant. talking about it. I think it's kind of irrelevant to your project. And so I don't want to derail your project because I know that you're trying to, you're working on a specific question. So um, I only want to be pointing you in the direction of your specific question, not getting derailed by my weird. <laughs> no, but being derailed is where you've run into anomalies, which then lead you to further understanding in other places. So okay, that's why I enjoy these talks. Okay, so any living system will degrade over time. You can't reproduce a living system from an adult because errors have crept in over time. And to keep renewing and restoring, you need an original copy, a roadmap, a copy of the original state. And in the human sense, that would be DNA. Right, and sexual reproduction, so that you're combining two different copies and hopefully one of them is still good. Oh, that's interesting. So, so that's kind of an error, um, yep. error correction device. Yep. Yeah. There's all sorts of little, little if, you, if you think like an engineer, you'll start to notice a lot of these error correction, error detecting um, things going on in life and the universe. Well, and I mean, one thing I noticed is there's so much beautiful redundancy built into us um, because my, my husband had this, um, brain bleed back in November and it damaged a part of his brain but within just um, a month after it happened the mm -hmm. other parts of his brain took over and just he's like back to normal so all this redundancy just comes in and fills in the spaces mm -hmm. it's a very remarkable system that we're composed of <laughs> yeah so okay let's keep going we're almost there right Okay, well, you can ask me some questions. I think I've ran out of my notes now. So is there something you're feel, not feeling comfortable with or? Uh, no, I, I just um, wanna be sure I have, a, so there isn't really a working definition then of entropy that a person, you couldn't collapse this into a one sentence or even one paragraph. <laughs> No, that's my, my sense after all these years in physics is that entropy definitions are sort of like the, the blind wise men and the elephant parable. You remember that one? Yeah. Where they're, they're each finding a different piece of the elephant and say, oh, it's like this. Or, no, it's like that. And so I think everybody's definition that we're all using is to some degree correct. But it keeps telling my sense is that there's something deeper going on that we haven't yet kind of gotten to. Okay, well, I did write out some questions. Um, so 
does this mean that entropy does not increase unless some outside force is attempting to harness the potential energy to do work? I would say entropy increases always occur when you're trying to do work. Yeah. Work is being done someplace, somewhere, and that is causing entropy to increase. Or it's causing a transfer, transformation of entropy is going from one place to the other. And if you're, whatever work you're doing is not perfectly efficient, you end up with more entropy at the outgoing side of the cycle than you brought in at the start of the cycle. So that's why they say the entropy of the universe is increasing. So less than perfect conversion of heat to work raises the entropy on the cool side reservoir or the low potential side of whatever in a chemical system. Does that help or did I just make things worse? Well, I mean, it, it's a beautiful explanation of, of our limitation. <laughs> Basically, yeah. the energy- you know, we, could never, we could never become arrogant and think that we're capable of, of doing something perfectly because entropy. Right. Yeah. But entropy's, the universe might not be perfect. Maybe that's what it's telling us. Maybe there's a little catch somewhere in, in the corner that says, for all of the, the clockwork universe kind of physical laws, there's a little catch someplace that well, makes it less than perfect. Aren't we the catch? Yeah, we are the catch. Yeah, we're the catch. <laughs> which, but, means that, which means that the universe, broadly speaking, is willing to accept imperfection because of great love, a, will, a willingness to abide by um, imperfection because of love. So, yeah, you could, um, you... What? <laughs> well, you know, go back to where we started. You know, I, I asked the question, is it possible to be predictable but not deterministic? That's the catch right there, it is. So it's possible for things to happen that the universe doesn't know or can't, because if the universe knew ahead of time, then it would be guaranteed. It would be like predestination in, in, in Christian faith, that the universe already knew everything. So there was no possibility for something new to happen. And the only way for something new to happen is if the universe doesn't know what's coming next. So in some sense, life happens because of an imperfection. I don't know, does that yeah, yeah, make I any sense? That. I love that. And uh, um, I had one more question here someplace. Maybe I should say life. I think creativity requires. Okay, so that, that. that brings up my other question. So creativity, um, because I, I think that, so you've been talking about this qualitative boundary that crosses that you that you cross when you go from the well what when you're either looking at the inside or the outside there's a qualitative boundary that gets crossed it, mm -hmm. so the watch for example um, inside is very complex but once you cross that boundary and you're on the outside of the watch and just interacting with the watch now you have um, a much less complex system because the interaction is quite simple 
very simple to describe using a program because it's just looking at the hands of the yeah. watch. And you watched the video that I did with Alex when he was telling this story about Odysseus going from, yes. um, going from the sea using his oar onto land and meeting mm -hmm. up with these people who mistook the oar for a winnowing fan because it looked the same. Mm -hmm. But it, it did a, a, a new function, okay? So it has transformed. Its functionality has transformed, even though it's the same object. Right. And Alex made the statement that some qualitative boundary got crossed. And um, you're talking here about this qualitative boundary that gets crossed between the complexity inside and the, the capacity that's outside to interact with that complexity. Mm -hmm. So what are you thinking about when you're thinking about that qualitative boundary? Well, eventually we're, we're heading towards emergence because um, that's what, we, when you say something's emergent, that's exactly what you're saying, is that the boundary has been crossed. Complexity on the inside is not hidden from you in, in the sense that uh, the Markov blanket, <laughs> I think in your recent talk, um, all of a sudden the inner complexity is hidden from you and now you're dealing with a simple object. That's, that's exactly what the definition of emergence is. Um, the difference between weak, weak emergence and strong emergence is that in cases of weak emergence, the boundary is usually artificial. So thermodynamics is, is the science of heat engines, pistons and cylinders. So in that case, your boundary is the cylinder walls and the piston. Whereas when you're dealing with strong emergence, the system is making its own boundary. So as, as a life form, that's exactly what we're doing. That's, that's what we mean when we say a system is self-organizing, that it has created its own boundary and is maintaining its own boundary now and sense of identity. So I think that's what, um, um, Friston, yeah, keep forgetting. He's he's getting that in his um, his way of looking at things. He just needs to take things a little deeper, and then I think he'll he'll really get it. Wouldn't it be great if we could get a conversation between you two? <laughs> <laughs> well, you sent me that link, and I looked at it, and on some level I disagree, but then other places I'm like, okay, yeah, the guy gets it. All right. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's what would make a great conversation, though. If you agreed about everything, there's no point in talking, right? I know, but uh, he's he's still seeing the outside view. He ha he hasn't yet penetrated the the looking glass and seen the inside yet. Well, so what's but, interesting to me is the boundary itself, because you're moving from one thing to another. You're you're passing this boundary, and there are many different kinds of boundaries, I guess, but one, one kind of boundary is just the edge between two things. You have the inside and the outside, and there is a separation. There's, a, there's an edge between the two. But is it that all the cool stuff happens at the edge? Uh, 
I wouldn't say that necessarily, but there's a lot that happens there because edges have to be permeable. Otherwise you couldn't get food and sustenance in and out. Yeah. Communication with other similar um, emergent objects couldn't happen unless there was some communication. So boundaries in the, in the strong sense are, are still permeable, still open. Um, well, I think they're also what allows they're also what allows potential error to move back and forth. Um, um, they're still physical systems. They still have the second law applies to a, a life form as much as it applies to anything. It applies to a computer too. But 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 on the inside, the system is still plugging away and it's it might be very ordered in there like a cell very mm -hmm. ordered it, it, it's plugging away it's very complex but it's very ordered it, it's working the way it's supposed to work but because there is a permeable edge there's potential for something to get in there that could cause problems right? yep. yeah it's called so, a virus yeah so in a sense that edge um is the is the place where anomaly can creep in, and and um, and when anomaly creeps in, that's what forces some sort of adaptation. So you're either gonna you're either gonna succumb to the virus or you're gonna triumph over the virus, right? Mm -hmm. So so there's something about that edge. There's something which if I think of if I just step back and I take Jordan Peterson's big picture and he's using the terminology in an archetypical archetypical yeah. sense and not in a sense of physics. You have order and chaos and you have the edge in between and within order, everything's plugging away. It might be very complex, but it's doing its thing. It might've gotten frozen up and needs something new. Mm -hmm. And then there's over here, there's all the chaos, which is, um, the way I've come to think of it is it's where all the potential lies, all the potential information, all the potential knowledge, um, all the potential excitement <laughs> is over here in, mm -hmm. the, in the chaos side, whatever that is archetypally. But the hero or the creativity, I mean, I think of the hero being, the, being creativity itself, that mm -hmm. creativity is always riding that edge, always, is always prepared at the edge to move over into the chaos and bring something back into the order. So the edge itself is where all the exciting stuff happens. And mm -hmm. I just wondered if that scaled down to this whole idea of entropy. Oh, giving me some homework to think <laughs> about. Um, what my general feeling is, is that we've burdened this poor word called entropy with a lot of baggage that maybe it's not meant to carry. So, well, I certainly don't want to burden it with baggage, and I'm perfectly <laughs> willing to look at it strictly on its own. But, you know, you have your project and I have my project. And yes. my, my project is how many of these big picture things can be seen in, in all of the small things? How, how much of that scales? through the whole system. I mean, it, it, uh, as you're talking about entropy, in my mind, I'm running through, oh yeah, okay, so history, yeah, it works in history, yeah, it works in semantics, yeah, it works in literature, yeah, you know. So, so I see a lot of places where the same 
the same process is going on, yeah. right? So I just want to understand the process well enough so that I can find out if I see it all these other places. Because over the course of the two years I've been doing this channel, all the conversations I've had on entropy told me, I obviously didn't understand it because there's so many different ways of looking at it. So I figured there had to be something more. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering if there isn't something like so fundamental buried inside entropy that if we understood it, it would be like world changing. <laughs> yes, yeah. Like I say, if you can answer that one, you'll have a Nobel Prize. One of the things I, I struggle with when I, I any definition I, I take or I want to give myself, I always expand my context. Okay, does this apply to bigger and bigger realms? And so when we talk about heat, input, work done, heat, output, well, what is heat? It's kind of a random disorganized form of energy. It's undirected energy. Work is a directed energy. It's, it's given by force times displacement. So work by its very definition tells you you're moving something from point A to point B, which is why um, an engine is always a cycle. You can only push so far before you have to take your whatever it is you're moving and go back to start over again from zero. So extracting work energy from random heat energy is always gonna be a cycle, a repetitive one. And so that's where the Carnot version of the second law comes into play. It's, it tells you how that cycle works. Um, but where does the heat come from? Where does the cold come from? And when our universe was formed, we were lucky that it's all clumpy. The heat's in one place, there's cold in other places. And because we have available on the earth is a perfect place where there's just enough heat and just enough cold so that um, life, so to speak, lives in the waterfall between the hot and the cold. As random energy is moving from the hot side, highly random to the cold side where it's a little bit slower random, we can extract work energy and do useful creative things out of that. So that's maybe a more metaphysical way uh, entropy is just somehow a measure of the efficiency that you can make that transition from highly random to lowly random. I'm kind of just, I don't know, guessing my way forward right now to see if something works. Well, so, so um, before life existed on Earth, when, when it was just magma and... Mm -hmm shell and rocks and um, water and whatever before before yeah. life existed then there was no harnessing of heat to do work well yes yeah well look at a geyser the heat of the earth heats the water up the water expands it shoots out so physical work has been done on the water to get it to shoot up into the air and it comes back down but no creative work has been done by that. Um, the water went up, splashed, and then whatever mechanical energy was in the water has now been converted to heat, again, just by acoustics and friction. So the, um, there has been a very inefficient cycle. So the, um, the entropy of the universe has gone up as a result of that. So these kind of notions aren't specific to a human doing an engine but a cycle. 
but in terms of nature, as far as I've been thinking about it, it's usually only a one-time deal. And the, the work that gets created is never harnessed to do anything creative um, in any sense. But people can argue that with me. Uh, I'm open for a debate on that one. Well, so entropy increases whether the work done is um, inefficient or efficient and whether the work done is creative or not creative. Right. Okay. So en entropy is um, more fundamental than, yeah, okay. Yeah, well, essentially what it says is the hot places are gonna get colder and the cold places are gonna get hotter. And eventually there won't be enough temperature difference in the universe to do any useful work anymore. And that's the, the heat death of the universe. Um, and obviously if that hadn't been happening, then the earth wouldn't be cool enough now for us to live on because right. it's so hot in the beginning. So, mm -hmm. so all of that uh, prepared a spot that was suitable for life. Yeah. yeah, if you look at the history of life on Earth, it's been really crazy. I mean, we've gone through millions of years of ice age. There's been periods of time when all, almost all life on Earth died, except for a handful of single cell things. Mm -hmm. um, we are a miracle that, that there's life at all, even just single bacteria, let alone us. So, and, uh, so you have your homework? <laughs> yes. And, and, you know, if you want to look at that issue of how much of the jazz happens at the boundary itself. Well, what I would say, eventually, we will, I want to keep going on the emergence. But yeah. the really interesting thing for me is you start with a complicated system. You cross that, you know, threshold of complexity, I'll call it. And now it's become simple. Now you have, a, now imagine a bunch of these simple objects, a whole bunch of complicated things, which are now simple. These simple objects can now start interacting with each other to form a new com com complexity, which then can go through the same cycle again, where you get a new layer of, of order. So you can have layers, uh, layers of complexity of, a, a simple oh, like, like ants. Yes. Or bees. So the ant colony is, is a complex organization of a collection of ants. Mm -hmm. But the ant colony acts like a single individual for all practical purposes. So you can treat the ant colony as a single individual. Its existence is not dependent on a single ant. Um, it can self-heal, it can self-organize. Uh, you can take on complex decision tasks, if, if you want to call it that. Um, and we, we humans, interact with it. We can interact with it as though it's a very simple system. Right. So uh, you can play that game up from, to, from atomic, you know, the atomic level, the molecular level, the cellular level. The cell is a completely com incredibly complex, but then the cell itself performs a few simple functions. The cells form organs. The organs form your body. Mm -hmm. um, and then you are an individual. You're part of a society. The society's uh, cultures can be viewed as a living organism in their own right. Mm -hmm. um, so they interact with each other. Right. So that to me is the real intriguing thing about this 
um, of complexity becoming order is it, it's a cycle that can keep, keep repeating as you go up layers. So by the time you get to us as humans, we're probably living at least three different layers of complexity. Um, but so, I think it also shows the, the usefulness of boundaries. Mm -hmm. But we need to be paying attention to where those boundaries are. And I don't think a lot of discussions focus on that. Well, when I listened, when I listened again to um, our last, and so I'm, I'm going to end with this kind of controversial thing <laughs> okay. I throw out there for people to think about. Um, I listened to our last conversation, and um, you said at one point, you said after a certain point, you're not dealing with the inside; you're just dealing with the outside, and at that point, your interaction becomes greatly simplified. Right. And I wrote in the margin. This is why identity politics is so powerful because identity politics um, says that you don't have to deal with the complexities anymore of an individual because right. dealing with an individual is very, very complex. But if you put all the individuals together and say, oh, they're just this identity. Now you only have to deal with that identity. And so now that simplifies everything. So now you know how to put people in boxes because they fit inside that identity. Well, when you put a person in a box, you destroy their humanity. So yeah. if, if we are, are living systems and they're a part of a, a yet a higher social organization, then there's a, you call it a collective consciousness. I mean, that's, that's the word that we, we become ants in a big colony. I hate to say it that such, um, a horrible way, but society is a, li a living, breathing organization, a life form in itself, and we are all part of this bigger thing. And we take some of our identity from that bigger thing. And I suspect as a Christian, that's where the spirit resides. It's a collective consciousness that we all become part of, helps guide us, focus us. And as we, to the extent that we're part of this bigger whatever, I'm not sure what you want to call it, Life is not about you. I think that's the big lesson. Uh, that's where our humanity comes from. What makes us human is to the extent that we're part of whatever this bigger thing is. And to the extent that we isolate ourselves, cut ourselves off from each other, um, we're in the process of destroying the very thing that makes us human. So that's why I'm really afraid of identity politics. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's utilizing boundaries in a very... Um, destructive way. Right. Setting up incorrect boundaries. Yeah. Well, if you accept the existence of a Holy Spirit, then there must be unholy spirits as well. And one can assume the narrative that's destroying humanity is one of the unholy spirits. If you want to end this conversation on a more spiritual note. <laughs> well, I'm sure looking forward to episode four. Okay, well, I'm going to wait for an inspiration on that one. But I'm sure it'll come. Yeah, I'm sure it'll come too. <clears throat> this has been great, Glenn. Um, I so appreciate you allowing me to pick your brain and uh, you're a wonderful teacher and you're so gracious with your time and energy. Well, I'm having fun. This is like going back to college and hanging out at the coffee shop and talking <laughs> about crazy things <laughs> till late at night. Oh yeah, I, I remember how we were so dumb. I mean, we, we were all lit and, and theater majors. And so we're sitting around and we're talking about what's the meaning of yellow. <laughs>
you know, if you were blind, how would you describe it to somebody? Well, that's a good question. Information theory. Yeah. Okay, Glenn, have a great day. I will. Same to you. Thanks. Bye now.